Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome into episode one of season two of Let's Hear It. Or 1.1. 1.1. we did the, that crazy intro. I suppose. Does that count? Okay, that's episode one. One point one. So this is episode two. Uh, Good to see you, Mr. Brown. Hey, man. How are you? So um, uh, what are you doing these days? What's going on? Okay, well, uh, if we we got all this right, we'll see. Today is February 5th, Wednesday, February 5th, the first official day of the Frank Conference Uh at the University of Florida at Gainesville. And Frank Carell, after whom the conference is named. Who we've talked about on this podcast before. Many times. Quite a bit, yeah. The the godfather of foundation strategic communications yeah and the conference is named after him and it is a conference where communications people of all stripes attend i i will be there and so i'll be in two places at once in your ear it's a technology is a beautiful thing it's like magic and in gainesville florida for people who can't go or didn't go or yeah what do you do if you actually can't get there you can go you can go onto the website and you can look you can watch videos from the conference. They you post can, stuff. They yeah. put stuff up, and you can look at old old years mm. stuff. It's 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 a, a fabulous conference. It's hard to get to, but it's worth it once you get there. No, it's awesome, and I remember um, hearing about the genesis of that conference on the on the interviews last year, and um, it uh, it just sounds amazing. So that's great that people can get access to it by not having to be there in person. Yeah, but for make make time in your calendar for next year. That's that's my. That's my recommendation. It's really worth it. Nothing wrong with Florida in January, I don't think. That's right. Or February, yes. or even March, or any month of the year. So, what are we what are we talking about today? So you have well, you tell me because I, yeah. I have to say this is really a treat. I've had a chance to listen to it. We have a lot to talk about, but why don't you give us the quick intro and then we'll we'll get into it. Okay, so I sat down with John Powell, who is. All right. The, the list of things that he is 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 pretty extraordinary. He's the director yeah. of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. Used to be known as the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. And this notion of inclusion gets into our conversation, which is why he did, changed the name. He is also a professor of law, professor of African American Studies and Ethnic Studies. He is the Robert D. Haas Chancellor's Chair in Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley as well. He is. Um, He's one of these people who has taught me so much. I, I was in Cuba with him, and we talk a little bit about a fun and exciting episode that we had there. But this year, if anything, um, th- this conversation with John is like the culmination of a number of conversations that we've had this year or people whom we've heard from. So think uh, Ben McBride, Trabian Shorters. Um, there are other people who we haven't heard from yet, but who are really uh, having this conversation with us. I would say Anat Shankar Osorio, uh, her work has been really influential. Uh, and, and 
many others. There are folks that, are, that I'm, I'm leaving out. But this conversation with John, I think, is kind of the expression of where we could go when engaging in the narrative about equity and about a better future just in general. That's, that's my take on John. And we get 40 to 50 minutes today. This could and should have gone on for hours. And I'd like to take it as a down payment on a conversation, hopefully, that we can extend throughout the course of this entire year. Uh, this is really tremendous. This is Professor John A. Powell on Let's Hear It. Let's give a listen. Welcome to Let's Hear It. I am joined by John Powell, who is the director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but you are so much more than that. Uh, you're a law professor here at University of California at Berkeley, on whose hallowed grounds I, I sit right now, um, one of the places that had such an important effect on my life. Uh, and you're so many other things, but I think what um, somebody said, you're the Yoda of justice. But um, some people have called you a prophet. Uh, you um, and it's, it's and here you are. You're you're just a, a guy, right? Yes. <laughs> it is so, such a pleasure to sit and talk with you, John. And I almost don't know where to begin. But I guess what I'll begin with is just to thank you for having such an important effect on me in the time that we spent a week together. I also am happy to say, or actually, I feel privileged in that I'm probably the only human being on the earth who you abandoned at a Havana disco. <laughs> and I didn't abandon you, Eric. I looked for you for an hour. <laughs> this is a point of, of serious with, contention. With two other people. <laughs> I believe you did. I'm sure you did. It was, uh, it was a comedy of errors, but we, we spent a, a week. <laughs> and then I must say, Eric, I, I, it's a delight to be talking to you, but it was even more a delight to see your dance moves. <laughs> And you, I have to say that, um, you, so you travel whatever it is, 300 days a year. You, we were at this thing in, in Havana where it was a, a week of talking and translating and it was hot and we were in cramped things. And by the end of the day, everyone was wiped out and people would say, who wants to go dancing? And your hand was the first to go up. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if I'm the Yoda of uh, justice, but I, I did put the D in dance. Yeah. <laughs> So I have to uphold that. <laughs> well, so with that as background, I'm very excited to have this conversation. Uh, I don't know where to begin, but so maybe we'll just begin at the beginning, which is you're from you're from Detroit, right? That's right. What was your childhood like? Well, you know, it's one of those interesting questions, right? Most people say, what, what, what was your neighborhood? How'd you grow up? How do I know? You know, because it's the only childhood I, I, you know, mine is the only one I really know. I, yeah. I see my children, but I'm an adult when I see theirs. Uh, have, had and have a very loving family. Uh, I'm six of nine, and we grew up with very modest material means, but an abundance of love. And and then um, some stuff that's unbelievable, like my mom and dad had like a storybook love relationship. They met when they were... 16 and 14 and got married when they were 16 and 18. They're from the South. I was one of the first children born up North. But here's the interesting thing, Eric. Uh, I, I, talk a lot of my, I talk a lot about my family. My mom has passed. My dad and mom and family has had a huge impact on me. And I say, if I were to list to, for you all the things that my dad and mom have been through, 
you would get a picture of them. It would be the wrong picture, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so our list of things don't really tell us who we are. And uh, on some accounts from outside, my dad and mom had a hard life, not having enough money. I remember literally not having food to eat, um, having holes in my shoes, um, my dad having um, a furnace blow up in his face and driving around Detroit trying to find a hospital that will accept a black patient. Um, and and yet when you meet my family and particularly my dad it's like this joy mm-hmm. that just radiates this love that just radiates and i feel fortunate that i got to bathe in that growing up i didn't always have it when i was a young man in fact i wanted my dad to be a little bit more angry sometime um but now i appreciate it well i get that feeling because i think people without being over the top here people bathe in your the essence that you put off I mean, people are attracted to you for for a reason, and it. it I don't want to go all the way back to the. I don't want to start at the beginning and jump to the <laughs> end, but I, I I get that. I totally see how people would think that about your father because I I have a feeling you have some of his qualities. Yeah, I hope so. What? Uh, so you're a kid, n- not in a particularly wealthy family, living in Detroit, and now you're a professor of law at Berkeley, among a million other things, and you run the Haas Institute. What? It's a long story, but give us the cliff notes. Well, two things. One, I want to mention, uh, especially for my Berkeley uh, colleagues who listen to this. I'm also a professor of ethnic studies and African-American studies, right. and they oftentimes get short shrift. I'm sorry. Know. I should Oh, no, no, that's that. all right. I know my, my resume is way too long, even for me. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, I traveled around. In, in some ways, my, my life, you know, I lived in different countries. My oldest daughter was born in Tanzania. I've lived in India. Um, I have just done many things, but they're always with the same theme. And the theme is basically uh, trying to make the world a better place for uh, all expressions of life, but certainly humans, but not limited to humans. And trying to figure out the best way to do that, trying to um, add my contribution. And sometimes that's through starting organizations. Sometimes it's through Law sometimes is through just listening to people. Sometimes it's through raising money. Uh, sometimes it's, it's through trying to reconnect myself and other people with the earth and spirit, um, and and all those things together. So in that way, I feel fortunate. Although we're here in the Bay Area dealing with fires mm-hmm. and winds, and it's a very sad time as well. And I'm not a very sad person, but two days ago I woke up just feeling sad for the earth and what we're doing to it and what we're doing to ourselves and worried about my grandchildren, which I'm not a worry as well. What I do with that is like, is there anything I can or should be doing differently in this time? Do you think there is? I think we I think we live and, and move on different planes. And sometimes what you can't do on one plane, you can do on another plane. An uh, interesting story, years ago when I was um, doing something, I can't remember what now, I think living in Seattle and and trying to move some agenda and feeling a little stuck and talking to my dad. And he said, John, you sound a little down. I said, I am a little down. And he said, what's going on? And I said, this issue, it might have been housing or criminal justice or whatever. I said, you know, I'm working on this issue and uh, I feel like it's just too much. I can't do it all by myself. And he said, you're never by yourself. He said, Christian minister, he said, God is always with you. So I think to some extent, we don't know what our contribution is. Try to be thoughtful and smart about it, but we don't really know. I just had the 50th reunion 
from my college graduation and two friends that I hadn't seen, one in 40 years, one in probably 25 years. And one of them told me, and he was from Texas, that I did something that radically changed his life. I couldn't even remember it. (laughs) Are you sure it was me? (laughs) So I think that, you know, we do the best we can in a larger story, and we don't know how it will ultimately impact the world. Did, Did he tell you what it was you did? He did. He said when we were in college, I talked to him about Tai Chi. Now, he attributes this to me. I don't take credit for it, but he said in in my description, there was this light, and all of a sudden, he was just bathed in energy. And he said that's never happened to him before mm. and never happened to him since. His father was a prominent judge in Texas. Uh, he went on to become a prominent lawyer in Texas. Uh, and then he said one day he was walking down the street, and he passed a Tai Chi studio. He went in and started taking Tai Chi. 25, 30 years later, he left the law firm, moved to Mexico, bought some land, and he teaches energy work in Tai Chi. And he attributes that to me. It's like, well, I'm glad it worked out well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, it's that Yoda thing. So Yoda. You obviously were a good student and took advantage of that. Where did your where did your studies take you? What, what was the trajectory there? Well, it's interesting. I went to a high school that was apparently integrated, but not. The building was integrated. The classrooms were segregated. So about half the students were black and half were white. One or two others, Latinos, Asians, uh, Native Americans. Uh, but mainly it was divided black and white. And so most of the black kids were in classes that were not designed to go to college in general or really designed to send students into the factory. That was the prize in Detroit to get a good job in the factory. Going to high school, I I already knew, I was was curious about the world, about life, reading. I started reading very early and not just reading, but investigating things. I tested well. um, And so when I got ready to go to high school, the prince, I, I knew I had tested very well. You know, we had to take some tests and for AP classes. And so I was going to go to AP classes. Three older brothers who had gone to high school and none of them had gone to college and that I've been tracked away from it and older sisters as well. And I was, I'm, I'm doing this, right, because I'm interested in it. And the principal who had been in the Army, I think a colonel in the Army, he said, no, you know, you, I know what's best for you. You test okay, but you really should go on this other track or um, you'll be happier and you'll, be, you'll do better. And I said, no, I'm going into AP classes, college prep. And we went back and forth, and he said, well, if we're going to do this, you have to bring your parents up to school. Now, my parents basically had a lot of respect for authority and didn't really necessarily know about education. Uh, my father dropped out of school, I think, in the third grade to go to work. And so they come up to the school. And they're super nervous. You know, it's like there's this white authority figure. And they put on their Sunday clothes. And and as I recall, that's the only time other than my graduation that they came to school. And the principal said, you know, thanks for coming. We know what's best for John. He's not agreeing. And so we can put him in this other class, AP classes, but we don't advise it. And we only do it if you insist. And they very awkwardly said, well, we know you know what's best for John, but we're going to support John and let him take the AP classes. And so I was in this school 
where essentially half the students were black and half the students were white, but all of my classmates were white. And I created this tension in the school because by grades and test scores or whatever, I was the best students in the school. And I was black, you know, and, and the other students in the AP class were all white. And the teachers would comment. I remember one teacher saying, well, John got the highest score and highest this, but he's not the smartest kid. And then when I was going to graduate, two things happened. One, most of the teachers would not write letters of recommendation for me. They would write them for the white students. They thought I should go to the local community college or whatever. And two, I started getting all these scholarships, Harvard, Princeton, whatever. I had been reading that these colleges were essentially all male. Uh, not even essentially, they were all male. And I have five sisters. And I thought, that's not right. You know, I'm 16. Well, I said, I'm not going to school with all males. That's just wrong. And so ultimately, I turned them down. And my parents, again, who were not steeped in education, but they had her to Harvard. And it's like, you got a scholarship to Harvard and you're not going? I said, no. I said, then don't ask us for any help if you don't go to Harvard. I said, fine. And it was a hollow threat because they couldn't provide any help. They didn't have anything to help with in terms of re money resources. So I went to Stanford. They had never heard of Stanford. And so to them, I was like going to a second-tier school. And <laughs> <laughs> but later they came back and they said, you know, we can help you. And they gave me a couple hundred dollars, not realizing school costs way more than that. And so I was with the first significant, meaning 20-plus, uh, black students to go to Stanford in 1965. Um, and that was also strange, right? Because literally they had a counselor bring all the black students together, put out a blanket on one of the nodes out on the, on the grass, and service watermelon and talk about what it's like to be at Stanford. Whoa. It's like, well, yeah, exactly. Whoa. <laughs> How did you handle that? That must have been well, you just know, so bizarre. It was bizarre. But the good thing is, and one, there are many good things and some awkward things, there's a group of friends, most of whom I went to Stanford with, all black males, that once a year we get together and we take a trip together. And so there was this sort of strange and sometimes hostile outside world, but there was this also this deep connection that 50 years later is still standing as well. Yeah, you still do that, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really amazing. And it's awkward, you know, it's, I mean, because we've gotten older, and I, I said, you know, we used to do really more exciting things as it were you know go to you know a jazz concert or go dancing whatever and now we just mainly get together and you know talk or whatever and, and i said we're probably heading toward a cruise or we don't have to walk <laughs> <laughs> you know we just see each other but it's really important i mean it's really a loving and caring community and a couple of friends have died so we've had to replace some people and i would recommend everyone to do something like that I bet you st you still want to go dancing though, right? They they, they want to sit around. <laughs> yeah, it's a couple of us to still dance. <laughs> <laughs> you have good moves, by the way. For the, for the record, why did you go to law school? Well, when I finished Stanford, I went back to Detroit and I was teaching and working as a, I did had two jobs: teaching and social work. And essentially, I got fired from both. I got fired in part because when I was at the social work job, I would scroll through all the regs and stuff and figure out how to support people as much as possible. So if there's a strike and a lot of people are coming in to get help, you know, it's like, well, we can give you a baby crib and we can give you this and we can give you that. And then they would talk to their counterparts. It's like, 
you got a baby crib? I didn't get a baby. So they'd go back to their caseworker and say, why didn't, and then they'd have to uh, <laughs> respond, right? So it made me really unpopular with the caseworkers. <laughs> So my supervisor came and he said, you're not doing anything wrong, but I would advise you to start looking for another job. <laughs> so I did, and eventually I started teaching. And I was teaching for students who had been kicked out of the regular school because of whatever behavioral things. The same sort of thing happened. The, I got very close to the students. In fact, they'd stop by my house and we'd go to school together. A lot of them had been using drugs. And, and how I would use drugs, Eric, back then, they put a light film of drugs on their face and all day they would just rub their face and move it to their nose Whoa. and so they come into school and I say okay first thing I'm going to do is go to the bathroom everybody's going to wash their face oh no <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was great I, I really got, got close to the students and, where was uh, that? in southeast it's Detroit okay. uh, Eastern High School and at some point I left the classroom and a couple of students got in a fight in the school said, you can never leave these students alone, you know, and they fired me. And the students protested and um, they got my job back. When the school was on break, on summer break, they fired me again when the students were gone. But also realized that for all the problems associated both as a social worker and teaching students who really was miscategorized. Many of those students didn't have behavior problems. They had problems, but some did, but most did not. That really it was like policies and rules and laws that really weren't serving. These laws weren't designed for these kids. And so I started thinking about how do you restructure institutions and society to actually serve people who are on the margin? And I thought law would be a good mechanism. And so that's what got me back to school and in law. And you went to so you came out of law school, did you practice? I did. I practiced many different things. I, I supported black and minority businesses. There's a group in Seattle called, I think it's the Four Amigos, that was black, white, Asian, and uh, Latino. Um, uh, anyway, and they were these really close friends, and they did really innovative things in Seattle. One of them is still alive, Larry Gossett. He's been chair of the county council there for many years. So I supported them and just supported the community in whatever way I could and still friends. And then later I did postgraduate work, went to Africa uh, on in human rights. And eventually I worked as I was the national legal director at the ACLU for many years, ran a legal services office in Miami. Uh, and I was down there during the um, Haitian uh, immigration crisis, very intense because the uh, the United States was treating Haitians and Cubans quite differently. I started really advocating on behalf of the Haitians. And the head of legal services, Congress threatened to defund legal services unless it's not, among other things, supporting these Haitians. And so the head of legal services came down to talk to me about not doing this. And said, what are we in business for? You know, this this is our job. And I eventually got a coalition between the Cubans and the Haitians. They got Congress to back off. And some of that work is still going on. Out of that came the Haitian Refugee Center. And then I eventually moved up to the ACLU. And at the time, the ACLU was doing great work, but it was kind of thin on some of its racial justice work. So I pushed some of that. At times, there was a pushback. Some people, I remember one person said to me, you really mean to be at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund rather than ACLU. We're not a civil rights organization or a civil liberties organization. And I said, no, I think we're both. But that's shifted, and now the ACLU is squarely involved in a whole range of issues, including uh, racial justice, and they have a racial justice 
program. And so, and when I was leaving ACLU, I remember talking to a friend and I was talking about the need to have institutes that connected these things, that connected theory and practice, that connected academic and community. And I was trying to get this friend's name is Chuck Lawrence. It's like, you should do that. He says, it's a great idea, but I'm not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So I left there and started something called the Institute on Race and Poverty at the University of Minnesota. And then you know, the last 30, 40 years, I've probably created 10 different institutes. Most of them still ongoing. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into othering and belonging. I'm True. very excited about this conversation because all the time we spent together, my, my brain has been going nonstop since. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break and be back with John Powell. Listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please and rate us we're on back. the podcast. Welcome back so more to people can find us. Let's hear it. I'm here with John Thanks Powell on, on the campus of the show. UC Berkeley. Uh, go Bears. <laughs> uh, so, John, let me start actually with the fact that you don't capitalize the letters of your name. Can you talk about that? Sure. So that came out of uh, high school uh, as I became aware that most African-Americans are carrying slave names. They don't don't really connect us back to Africa. And so what they connect us with is a slave master. That's problematic on a lot of levels. I think names are important, and I think ability to name yourself is also important. I think Muhammad Ali is an example of that. Um, So I started looking for an African name that would connect me with my ancestors. turns out I was named after my thought I was named after my grandfather on my mother's side, uh, John Anthony. So I was reading E. Cummings, I was being influenced by Muhammad Ali and others. And then I also was starting to reposition myself to start thinking of people as part of nature and the universe as opposed to separate and above nature and the universe. And so I thought, okay, so if I drop the caps, that signifies, like putting your names in quotation mark, that that would actually reflect that. And and also it made sense to me that while trying to connect to my distant ancestors, I shouldn't piss off my mom and dad. Uh, <laughs> so I went to them and they said, that was fine. They didn't care about the caps. So I, I dropped the caps. And it's only in the last five or 10 years that something occurred to me, Eric, that hadn't occurred to me prior to all that time. And that was my mother's father was Native American and don't know which from which tribe. He would go back and visit, but he didn't take my mother with him. Uh, my mother since passed away. His name was not John Anthony. That was a colonial name. <laughs> and so not in a serious, not in an intense way, but in the last couple of years I've been trying to figure out, so what really was his name? And now all the people who knew are dead. Mm. I'll still keep noodling around, seeing if I can find out. So it's just an interesting story. Yeah, that's great. Well, naming things is important, and language is important. And you have, I've learned so much from you about language, about how you speak about things changes the way people feel about things. And you have introduced a concept called othering and belonging. Mm -hmm. You have a biannual, or every other year, I don't know what the phrases conference on othering and belonging and i know we don't have a ton of time for this and you could spend 
I'm sure you spend semesters teaching your students about othering and belonging, but can you give our listeners the 10 cent tour? What do you mean by othering and belonging? A couple of things. I run this large institute, as you know, uh, and it has seven different clusters, and the clusters are both thematic and focus on different populations, so disability, gender, race, religion, sexual orientation. And it occurs to me that they're all doing really great work, What's the through line? How, how are they related? So early on, I thought, really, they're all dealing with different expressions of othering. Sometimes people might call it marginality. It's refusal to recognize someone else's full humanity and mutuality. And, you can, and we can do it based on anything, right? You can do it based on someone's age or based on someone has an accent, based on any number of things. So... I wanted to create something that was a container that held all of these different clusters, that's the, what they're called. And so othering and belonging, so it's the othering process of saying to people, you don't belong. And it's not just saying it verbally or psychologically. We say it with structures. We say it with cultures. We say it with practices. Segregation. Uh, is a way of saying this group doesn't belong. Putting kids in cages is a way of saying these kids are not fully human. They're not our kids. And so it actually becomes then a potential expression of how do we deny someone their full humanity. The flip side of othering, uh, I say it's not saming, which is what oftentimes where liberals go. It's like we're all the same. I say, no, 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 no. I mean, that may be a positive impulse, but it still denies people their full humanity because it's saying, you're okay because you're like me. Or what if I'm not like you? Uh, am I still okay? Can I be myself? Can I be different and still okay? So belonging then is saying, uh, acknowledging people's full humanity. And to really practice belonging in a deep way, you need three things. You need agency. In order to belong, it's not that you just belong. You co-create the thing you belong to. The thing is not already there. Your your involvement actually affects the thing you belong to. Uh, so that means co-creation. And co-creation requires agency. It requires power. And it requires love. And when you have that, then it's the best chance of having full expression of humanity and our connection to each other and our connection to the earth. So that's... Uh, uh, and that work has really just been powerful, not just in the United States. It's quite powerful here. And I would advise the li- listeners to go to our website and look at the conferences online on the othering and belonging. But we're doing now work in, as you know, Cuba. Uh, we're very busy in Europe. There have been requests to come do some work in Africa and Latin America. So the expression of othering and belonging is something that happens differently in different parts of the world, but it happens all over. What are you learning from people in other places? Obviously, you understand the American experience, and to some extent, the time you spend in in Africa and other places. But what do people outside our way of thinking teach you? There are different ways and different intensities uh, for othering and as an, an analogy for belonging. I think one of the things that are nice about belonging, it actually leans quite heavily into a practice of spirituality. It also can show up in terms of architecture, the way you design structures. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to watch how people, if they embrace the concept at all, how they operationalize it. It's also interesting in the United States, because as you know, when you travel outside the United States to different cultures, what you learn about most is not the other cultures, but about the United States. And so, for example, in the United States, people think of the, the, the axis where othering and belonging takes place as natural. You know, like, well, naturally people want to be with their own. So, well, who's the natural, 
who's your natural own? Well, if I'm white, then white people. If I'm Christian, then Christians. It turns out there's no natural. You know, we know this through health, and we know it through the mind science. And so one of the, we're planning this conference now in Europe, and one of the groups we want to get there are people from Rwanda. Tremendous genocide and a lot of suffering there. But also, it's been 25 years, they're trying to bring people back. Mm-hmm. But they don't have the access of race. They didn't do it around the access of religion. I mean, a lot of things that we think of as natural didn't exist there. Right. And yet, they still were able to profoundly other each other yeah. so much that they had committed mass genocide. And as I sort of think about the world, I think about the explosion of authoritarian populism uh, and ethnic nationalism that's happening all over the world. 60% of the world now live under regimes where that's expressed. What I see is that what's driving it are multiple things, but one of them is the othering of some other group, some group. And it varies, right? And so... It's nice to, interesting, not nice is the right way, to see that. But it's also interesting that groups don't naturally see what they're doing as similar to what somebody else is doing. So to give you an example, uh, my daughter had a Fulbright to study in Spain. And she was interested in particular how we stigmatize people who are without housing, call them homeless. And it's usually around a certain demographic, right? And so she was saying, in Spain, are there groups that are stigmatized and therefore other and show up disproportionate in terms of housing and the lack of concern, the lack of love, the lack of engagement. No, we don't have that in Spain. You're confusing us with America. Really? There's no such group? No, not here in Spain. We treat everybody fine. And then she says, what about the Romas? Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> them. <laughs> them, right? <laughs> we don't, we don't, we're, they're so invisible. Right. We, don't even, we don't even think of them. We think of people, which is part of the point. At the unconscious level, when you don't see someone as people, there's a part of the brain that does not light up. And I've written that if, if you don't see people as human, you can't adopt effective policies for them. So we're just learning how people navigate this, how people make sense of it, and what people are willing to do to try to address it. We used to, we used to and by saying, by used to, I mean like two years ago, talk about inclusion as the antithesis of othering. But you've said, you've actually, I think, shed some light on that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why inclusion is a, kind of a tricky word? Yeah, um, and, and words have multiple meanings, so people might use the word differently. But both, there's, a, I think, an important move with inclusion, an important move with equity. I think both are actually limited. Uh, and don't go nearly far enough. And one day we may be saying the same thing about othering and belonging. Mm-hmm. But inclusion oftentimes suggests that you're joining something that's already there. And at its weakest uh, expression, it's a kind of assimilation. So the person who's joining has to do all the work. It's like we already have our institution, we already have our culture, we already have our country. Welcome. But you're, as, as um, um, some conservative writers argue that we should stop saying this is a country of immigrants and say it's a country of settlers, that anyone who comes afterwards are included on the terms expressed by the settlers. They don't get to negotiate the terms. And the terms are you have to be English-speaking, you have to be at least Protestant values uh, and other values, and those are non-negotiable. So the example I give sometimes is that if I give a party, I might invite you to come, but you come listening to my music, it's my food, it's my house. And if you don't like it, you can leave, no hard feelings. 
if we give a party, then we negotiate that together. It's our party. Mm-hmm. We have to negotiate the food. We have to negotiate the music. We have to negotiate all the terms. So the first party is an inclusion party. We're inviting all these people to be included in the party. The second party is a belonging party. Mm-hmm. It's our party. It's not your party. It's not my party. It's really our party. And we're creating something that wasn't there before. The other example you gave, which I think is really apt, it's not fortunately yet not apt for me, but not not yet, but uh, is when married couples. Right, right. So uh, uh, social psychologists basically say if you marry, especially if you're over 30 and they each have their own house, they recommend that you don't move into each other's house. Uh, because if you move in one house, the tendency, even though you love the person, is that, well, this is my house. You know, welcome. There's a closet for you downstairs. Don't start changing the furniture. My mom gave me that picture, so it has to hang there. <laughs> so everything's set. And it actually puts a lot of stress on the marriage. And the person who's coming into the house and the person who's actually inviting them in both feel stress because one is making demands or requests that it's like, you know, you really don't like that picture. My dead mother gave me that picture, you know. Uh, you don't like the color of that couch. That's the couch I had in college. <laughs> you haven't been in college in 30 years, John. <laughs> and so it, it, it's, it's a kind of power dynamic and uh, that actually puts stress on the relationship. So what social psychologists suggest is that you buy a new house together. And it's your house from the very beginning. You design it. You org- And so that's true in all these things. And, and, and part of the tension is that people can only negotiate so much change without stress and anxiety. The change that people are experiencing now is accelerating, and it's happening across multiple domains, and it's actually stressing us out. And then some people take that stress and say, it's like, it's those people. The authoritarian ethnic response to change is to go back to the past, put the brakes on the future because it's scary. Make make America great. Make America great again or make India great again. And usually it's like when there's one group that's dominant. And the thing about uh, sort of ethnic populism is where the dominant group and the majority are the ones who are claiming the most grievances. Right. You know, so it's like... I don't recognize America anymore. White people are being discriminated against. And as you know, the data suggests that most white people feel like the group that's most discriminated in the United States are white people, notwithstanding all the data on prisons and death and health. Uh, Same thing in India, where the Hindus feel like they're the ones who are suffering at the hands of the Muslims. So it, it really is a way of actually, one way is to sort of have this break. The liberal response is, again, to try to address it by saming. Right. By saying, we're all the same. It doesn't resonate as true. So gay marriage is the same as straight marriage. They're just like us, you know. And after they get married, they're not going to have any sex. They're not going to have any fun. And it turns out that maybe the way gays do marriage is different than the way, than the way straight people do marriage. And what the, the early literature is suggesting is that based on marriage equality, not only gays express it differently than straights, but it's actually affecting the way it straights. And that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not categorically separate, but it doesn't have to be bad. It actually could be better or at least different. And so the other is to sort of think about, okay, we're going to something new and we're creating a new we, a larger we, but it's not necessarily scary. And then the last thing I want to say on that is that some people get totally organized in an unhelpful way around power. It's like a white people had the power and they did all these terrible things. Now, people of color are going to have the power. And I suggest in that statement that once people of color have the power, maybe white people will get their due. 
Maybe they'll be subjugated in some fashion. And belonging really is that you don't have power over, you have power with, that everybody belongs. So it's not I belong and some other group doesn't belong. And in that belonging, everyone has to participate in the co-creation. Do you think that American culture is coming to a crescendo? It feels like we are now in this very, very strange place and that something's going to have to happen. I think that's exactly right. And actually, I've been saying that for years, even before the 2016 election, and it's going back five years ago. But going up to the 2016 election for president, I was saying to my students that, the, that the, basically the organized center has, has fallen. And so the country was going to move substantially to the left or substantially to the right. And it didn't, in a sense, it matters a lot. But in either direction, it wasn't going to settle that the churning that's happening in the country is not, it's going to take at least a decade, maybe two decades to settle. And that's because the conditions that are creating that churning are, are still with us. We, we don't understand, basically, it's not simply do we become a more diverse country, do we become a browner country, do we become more of a, you know, are there more Muslims in the country? We are redefining who we are. The world is becoming smaller. The contact with people all over the world is becoming uh, more robust. And there's really no alternative. Turn on your cell phone, you can see what's happening in India right now. And we have not created the discourse, the structure, the institutions. I mean, climate change. The nation state is a clunky way to deal with climate change, right? You have these borders, we build a wall. Wait, wait, air, stay over there. (laughs) You know, you're coming from China, you're coming from Mexico. What are you doing in America? You know, the the environment is actually uh, structured differently than the, the institutions that are designed to actually deal with them. And the, the largest movement of people, certainly of refugees, are already climate refugees, which there's, the United States don't recognize, and those numbers are going to go up. And just think about that, climate refugees. So what's causing people in Latin America and parts of Africa to leave their homeland? Us. Because we and China are the biggest polluters in terms of climate. And then when people show up on our board, it's like, why are they here? You know, we just destroyed their rainforest. We just destroyed their homes. And they're migrating, trying to find a place to live. We don't have a language for that. People don't understand it. And then one one of my favorites is that even the categories of race and ethnicity is complicated now, right? It's always been complicated, but even more complicated now. So the fastest growing population in the United States are not Latinos. It's people who are mixed ethnicity and mixed race. We actually have, we don't have much of a language for that. So the language that we do have is wonky. It doesn't quite, it doesn't feel right, but it's huge. We're talking about millions of people. And some projection is that with the next hundred years, if not by the end of the century, the largest plurality in the country will be people from mixed race, mixed ethnic families. What does that mean? I don't know, but it means something. It means the way we've done things in the past simply doesn't work. It means the black-white binary simply doesn't work. It doesn't necessarily mean positive. It doesn't necessarily mean good, but that creates for people who and people who tend to be authoritarian or uh, tend to actually resist change even more. So if you're trying to slow the world down, you're kind of in a hard place and people need help. So, okay, let's not talk about miscegenation, mm-hmm. you know, because some people that makes them uncomfortable. All right, we're not going to talk about robots. what are you going to do when literally literally, robots are populating our world Uh, there was a scientist recently who said he's going to be the first 100% cyborg that sounds science fiction there's an article in paper yesterday about they've now developed an implant that allow people to share 
brain impulse so people can communicate with each other without talking brain to brain. We're here at Berkeley where CRISPR, genetic editing, is happening so we can actually change people's genes. So what does that mean? Talk about change, right? And that's, you know, we're not talking about immigration. We're talking about what it means to be a human actually going radical change. We're talking about what Harari caught talking about, not human evolution, human design. Well, you're freaking me out, Joe. <laughs> In just the couple of minutes that we have left, you have given me a vocabulary to begin to think about how do we co-create a better future, understanding that the current us against them, whether it's left versus right or white versus not white, those those dynamics are, are not getting us where we need to go, that we do have to find a way to, to bridge towards something better. And so I'm beginning to understand this. And I, I certainly think that the, 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 the more beautiful future that we create together w- won't be one group defeating the other and then making sure they stay defeated because right. then you'll just end in an occupied zone for right. the rest of your life. Where do you think that opportunity is best is most likely to happen or best found? Or what does that look like? Well, I think expressions of it are happening all over. And I, I think it would be help leaders, I think culture. And one of the things, the, the impulse, the, the demand for it is only going to get greater. And that's, again, sort of interesting. So the complexity in terms of we're talking about new we's, we're talking about new identities. And the religion plays a tremendous role in terms of helping people get grounded in terms of meaning who they are. We don't have a religion that actually easily fits the current needs. But the need for bridging, the need for belonging, is not just between people. It's not just between institutions. It's within us. So now we're talking about identity fluidity. You know, are you male or female? Yes. <laughs> right? Uh, and some people would be freaked out about that. And part of the old structures was trying to hold us, nail us down. You know, be one thing. And and I say a healthy society actually invites a kind of multiplicity of identity and a kind of fluidity of identity uh, with some structure, but to me, negotiated. And so I think you see expressions of that all over, uh, certainly here in California. I think California is playing with a lot of these ideas and then reconnecting, acknowledging our connection to the earth, uh, which is also very important. The head of Germany said multiculturalism is dead. Um, we should go to Canada. You know, it's not dead. It's, it, there's impulses. It's back and forth, and it's a complicated. Some people are resisting. But what's absolutely clear is we're not going back to the past. Uh, the future will become more of this. And we really need people to sort of think about it in deep terms, not just in technical terms, in sociological terms. Uh, and I think people are starting to do that. Uh, I think I know a lot of the work you do is associated with funders. And I've said this not just to funders, but to opinion leaders as well. We need to ha- help people learn to bridge uh, what David Brooks called weaving people together. We, in part, bridge by what Robert Sapolsky calls acknowledging each other's sacred symbols, even as those symbols change. Karen Barkey here does a thing around bringing people together who share sacred symbols. So instead of appropriating it, how do we actually begin to share? How do I hear a story about you that actually is not an attack on me? How do I listen to your suffering? And we're not good at that. We're, we, we tend to sort of and certainly when we break, and certainly when we sort of create these narrow we's, the only we that we're concerned about, America first, is some narrow group of Americans. So 
black Congress or Congress women of color, all of a sudden they're not in that we. Even though all of them are Americans and three of them were born in America, they still are not part of the we. And to some extent, the American experiment can largely be summed up in terms of how do we define the we. And it's always been back and forth. But generally expanding, not perfectly, but generally expanding the we. As you know, when the country started, only one-sixth percent of the people of voting age could actually vote. Right. If you didn't own property, if you're a woman, if you're black, if you're Latino, if you're Native American, you know, you're not part of the we. And as different people come in and make claims of being part of the we, other people's like, no, 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 that's a mistake. Well, you're not part of the we. So I think that what we see, and the, the last thing I'll say on this is that the division, which is profound, the polarization, which is profound, is more ideological than racial. So in terms of white people, we have probably the, the most aggressive expression of white supremacy, white nationalism that we've seen in, in many decades. We also have this huge expression of white solidarity, of white of whites who actually embrace equality in a way that we've almost never seen. So we have both of those things happening mm -hmm. at the same time. Where will we settle? It's up for grabs. Well, I know where I'm, I know where I want to go. <laughs> I want to go with you, John. All right, I'd like I'd like to have you with me. You, you are with me. I I'm, I see you. Uh, I I'm so happy to to be in your company to learn from you. You're a philosopher and an intellectual and the Yoda of justice, John Powell. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Eric. And let's do some more dancing. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, there it was, What'd Mr. You Brown. You've brought us the Yoda of justice. The Yoda of justice. You brought us a prophet. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing with the Yoda thing, I, I yeah. I'm a little worried that it it makes it kind of diminishes John. It shouldn't, um, mm. John. And so I don't want it. If anyone thinks that that I I I didn't mean that. It was some of it is just kind of good natured ribbing because he's such a lovely man. And uh, but anyway, he he really does. Uh, exude this incredible calm and knowingness and uh he his syntax however is perfect unlike yoda so i, I, I wouldn't want <laughs> to torture the comparison look the, the calm balanced the deep integrity it all comes across in spades in the conversation so does this reference to dancing in a disco at havana <laughs> do tell mr brown <laughs> so, Oh man, come <laughs> so, on! So of course, so at the end boondoggle. of this, no, no, not boondoggle. <laughs> at the end of this incredibly long, intense day where we're talking about race and it's happening in bilingual, you know, simultaneous translation in these hot little rooms, and and you're struggling mm -hmm. to hear, and everyone's exhausted, and like I said in the thing, it, when it's over, someone says, "Anyone want to go dancing?" And John's like, "I do." <laughs> so Gosh. we went to this amazing place. It's four-story art thing in down to in Havana where there's like I don't know dozens and dozens and dozens of galleries and rooms and there's art places and each of the galleries has a different DJ in it and there's music and there's drinking and dancing and I mean this is an incredible place and um, so I go we're all dancing together and I go to the restroom and I come back and everyone's gone and I'm like what where did everybody go? So I go looking around, and there's all these rooms. So I'm looking around. I went to the. I was gone for five minutes, and they turned around, and I was gone. So they went looking for me, and we mm. never found each other. I eventually so. took a cab home. 
So funny. So John left me hanging in a disco in Havana. Well, I think nobody he said can it. say that. Yeah, right. Well, I think he said he puts the D in dance. I think he does. I, I can't remember which one he said that. So I really liked how you structured this. We had the two parts, you know, the conversation around the break. And the first piece was really autobiographical. And I would love your reflections on that because we get a real journey. Um, and, you know, it's been one of my favorite parts of our podcast is tracing the steps that people take as they go through their own experiences that, you know, land them at these different roles and these jobs that we're talking about. So what are your reflections on this on this trip that John took you through, just kind of where he, he came from and how that put him in the place where he is now, where he's working on all these crucial issues? What an extraordinary life he's led. Yeah. It, I mean, talking about how, you know, his, his, I think it was his father got ill and they couldn't find a, mm. a, a hospital that would that would admit him. Driving around Detroit to find a place that would treat him. Yep. That's, kind of hospital that would treat him. That, that's that's extraordinary, and and I, you know I I say this with wonder. This is an experience that many people have had, and mm-hmm. and therefore, I mean that that tells me something right there. But John's experience has been extraordinary, and he has taken that experience, and I would say kind of channeled it into this this really textured kind of beautiful life. And I, he continues. He obviously has lots of energy, uh, but it, he, but he continues to bridge and co-create, and that's what the Othering and Belonging Institute is all about. That's what his Othering and Belonging conferences are all about. The next one is this year. It's June and in London, and I'm just going to mm. try and get myself there. And oh wow! It, for people who are listening, if you do one thing this year, spend some time with John Powell at the Othering and Belonging Conference and see what he's talking about in real life. It's, it's uh, th- that kind of work I find so amazing. The other thing is that his institute at, at Berkeley is huge. He mm. has, I don't know, scores upon scores of professors that are working there and students who are learning there. So what he's building isn't some niche thing. It is, it is, it is a real thing. It's huge. And it's significant. I, I just think it has such promise. It it just has such promise. I I, I have such um, hope. I have it just fills me with joy that he's out there doing that work. Well, you know, it's funny in that setup when he was talking about that experience in Detroit. You know, he said, um, it, it, "You can make a list sometimes of people what they've been through. You get a picture, and it's the wrong picture." And he said that we are not the list of things we've been through. And he referred to his dad in that sense. He said, "You know." You'd think with all those experiences, maybe my dad would you know, reflect a certain perspective. But he said, I look at my dad and I see joy. Yeah. And that's such a little nugget, right? It's such a little tip off in terms of what's going to come when he starts talking about the Southern of belonging and his perspectives on it. You know, one thing that really struck me, though, he talked about being one of the first 20 black students at Stanford. This is 1965. Right. I did. I did the math. It, it, is my math wrong? 2020 to 1965. How many years ago is that? <laughs> it is 54 years. Well, 50, 55, 55, 55 years. years. Yes. Yeah. And so there's just something there, isn't it? You know, you start getting this perspective and you think about these, you know, changes and these, you know, sweeping directions, this and that. 55 years ago, the first black student stepped foot in, on Stanford. Oh my goodness. Right. I mean, it, it, it maybe even think back, man, World War II was just 75 years ago. Yeah. So sometimes when we have this sense of like, you know, what's changing, what's not changing, I don't know, that the windows we're looking at. 
So um, othering and belonging. It sounds like John's brought you in. It sounds like you're. It sounds like you're riding on, riding on the train. Yeah, I'm what, on what the, do you think? That's right. I'm on the belonging train. That's for sure. It's uh, and it has, as as you know, I've been doing a lot of work with the San Francisco Foundation. Um, yeah. It has informed the way the foundation communicates. This is John's work. Uh, mm. and and you can look at a lot of organizations that are doing really powerful work and this notion of a sense of belonging is at the center of it in which we all feel like we belong in the communities we live in that we have that we are that we are creators and that i, I do believe that 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 narrative is really powerful and it is the thing that bridges into the next thing whatever happens because we John seems to think that we are at a at a, a change moment, and I tend to agree with him. The question is, where, where are we going to go? Are we going to change for the better? Or are we going to get get even worse? Uh, but I do think that if we if we change for the better, it is because we co-create a a better future with people uh, f- f- that we don't necessarily naturally agree with or have this thing in common per se. But that we understand that if we do it together, then we're going to get somewhere you know, good. And, you know, I'm an optimist. So people can can be listening like, oh my God, Eric, you are so naive. But I really believe that. I also think that there's no alternative. So there's that. Well, and you also defer to the experience of the person who's bringing this perspective. You know, you talk about the scale of the Institute that he's involved with. He was describing all the different clusters of work going on there. And then, you know, stepping back and, you know, thinking about this notion of like, well, what, what, what's the thing that's, you know, bringing all this together. And he talks about that notion of, oh, it's othering. It's this marginality piece he talks about. And, you know, as he was going through that, I was thinking about this in the context of, well, here's our podcast. It's about communications. And all of a sudden we're getting this whole description of all the different ways we communicate these differences in so many ways. And it's not just the language as important as the language it is, is, but you know, he was talking about, we say it with structures, we say it with practices, like all these notions of marginalized, how we marginalize, they get expressed in all these different ways. And then, um, I loved that turn then when he talked about, you know, the flip side of othering is not saming, right? Even if it's a positive impulse, it still denies that notion of the full humanity of the person who's on the other side. And, um, you know, that you're okay because you're like me. I, I, and again, I'm sitting here thinking about this from the context of communications work. And I'm like, oh, this is like a completely different, right? This is a totally different level of thinking about communications, don't you think? Yeah. In a way? Oh, he's like doing the Star Trek chess stuff. Oh, completely. Right. So, and then he talks about this belonging, you know, acknowledging people's full humanity. Now, this is the part that I did want to test you on because of Uh-oh. the different seats you've been in. Here's okay. your test. All right. So if I I'm walk into really bad your, at tests. I walk into your highfalutin office and you're surrounded by your highfalutin people and you're all doing <laughs> highfalutin things. You've seen my highfalutin office, my highfalutin <laughs> dog. <laughs> and I say, and I say, I've got an initiative and all I'm trying to do, I, I know I can pull this off if I bring these three pieces together. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bring together agency with power and love and I'm walking into philanthropy at scale. Yeah. Does the conversation stop there? Am I shown the door or do people say, (laughs) tell me more? I'm listening. Well, you know, my answer, right? It depends. It depends (laughs) on your decision maker. I Mm. do think that let's put, I'm going to, I'm going to spin you here. Kirk, mm, from please. my highfalutin office with my highfalutin Please. dog. Um, 
I think that that conversation is at least possible now in ways that it wasn't not that long ago, in which we did talk about how we're going to win and smite the enemy and and squish them into the earth and we're going to keep them down and we're going to have a demographic majority that will overcome whatever electoral challenge, blah, 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 all that that nonsense. Because uh, that's how we used, that's how we have done it up until this day. I'm, I have to tell you, I'm a little concerned that this presidential election uh-huh. will not be the belonging election mm. in which we co-create a better future. This is still yeah. going to be binary, beating the enemy, 50% plus one. How do we win the electoral map? And that's not where we need to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe with any luck at all, we'll be in a transition moment and we'll get better. But it's, uh, it is not, it's not there yet. Like I said, though, there are places in there are foundations, there are organizations who hear that message and say, yes, I'm listening and let's talk because I do. I do agree that even though we're not in that place yet, that's where we need to be. And let's how do we build that? Well, and I think that it's it's people like John, right? It's their willingness to even say that, that this is a method. And then he brings with it an academic rigor that would help people understand, oh, wait, there's something really that I can work with here. I completely agree. I think that that conversation has changed, but it just struck me. I'm like, man, I completely, I love what I'm hearing here. And then like so many other times when we've been talking about what people are working on in their actual work lives, I keep thinking about that piece of like, man, how do you present this so people can get behind it? You know what I mean? How Because it just seems like all this work seems so much more difficult to fund than it should be, you know, given its clear relevance. One thing... <laughs> That um, you guys just mentioned in passing that was a showstopper for me was when uh, he was referring to the explosion of authoritarian populism mm-hmm. and saying that 60% of the world today lives under regime or under regimes where that's expressed. I don't know that I've ever heard that number before, but it just struck me as just another piece here about how timely and how critical this kind of work is, yeah. you know, because the, the, the winds of change, unfortunately, in some key ways don't feel like they're, um, they're, they're going our way. Well, the no, last makes you thing... want to reach for the whiskey bottle, but oh man. <laughs> so, so the last thing then the last thing, cause there's a lot to talk about here, but the last thing it just, you guys towards the end got into this notion of the vocabulary for co-creating. Mm-hmm. And I just, and again, I just love that. But you were talking about that in the context, you know, once again, John went to this notion of like, what about robots? Where do they fit uh, into all this? You know, and all these different expressions. So I've got a, I've got a radical idea for you. Are oh you ready no. for it? Uh-oh. I have no, a radical I'm idea for you. I'm definitely not ready for it. You, you and, and I, you and I yeah. are going to launch the Way Out Conference. Oh God. And it's going to be the place where we bring social change folks to come together and talk about all this stuff that we've been hearing people mention and passing that we're just completely unprepared for. Okay. You know, robotics, artificial intelligence, yeah. you know, I've been accused of Trek. I've been accused of having artificial <laughs> intelligence for years. Yeah. <laughs> know, so would, I might be good at that. We would fit right in. Well, and, and then, you know, but just lastly, his, his that whole conversation about helping people learning to bridge. You know, and we've heard this language before on the podcast, right? How crucial it is to mm-hmm. learn that ability to bridge. And, and I, my goodness, we're just a, a brand, a, a, what is, I don't want to say brand new, but just such a deeper way to reflect on what that's about, what the work that um, John is doing. And my goodness, Professor Powell, what, what yeah. an incredible, what an incredible body I, of work. I love this man. I love this man. Well, um, 
we have to go so we don't go too long. But um, I'm going to advocate again for our long form podcast so that we can have <laughs> Professor Pal back <laughs> and just listen never. to him talk a little bit more. And then we want to talk a whole lot more. But I think no, we this... want to talk a little more. We want to hit them to talk a lot more. <laughs> Got to get our well, story straight, Kirk. Well, remember our great idea to do uh, cohorts, you know, co cohorts of like minded folks to talk oh, about yes. these issues. Wouldn't it be cool to have a cohort wrapped around yes. this set of considerations? Because, again, it's just there's so many pieces to it. So, well, I, Eric, by the way, I, I had a conversation with our previous guest, Billy Wong, about this very hmm. topic. She brought it up. And I said, OK, now, Billy, now that you brought it up, I'm in. I'm in. For, yeah, when exactly. Kirk brought it, it was a harebrained idea. That's right. <laughs> Billy it's brings called, it up. It's called third-party validation. That's what it's <laughs> called. That's what we refer to that as. Well, Eric, this was, I mean, what a treat. And again, just what a treat to be able to listen in on that conversation. And Professor Powell, what? Thank you, John. Again, what generosity. Yes, thank see you. you thank you. <laughs> okay, you get to see Dr. Powell in London. So. Eric, that was amazing. Thank you very much. All right, see everybody next time. Till next time, let's hear it. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown? <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. <laughs>